This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. The truth is the most convincing story that maps onto reality. That's why the central narrative is falling apart. Right now in the United States, people should not be walking around with masks. We must see the central narrative for the fiction that it is. We are Americans. While elections are sometimes messy, this was a secure election. The founders began the fight for human liberty and self-governance, and it's up to us to finish the job. I tell you what, we are in a truth emergency right now. This is the end game. It's Wednesday, November 29th, 2023, the 1043rd day of dystopia. I'm your moderator, Chris Paul. Let's be reasonable. A warm welcome and hello to all of you listening to the podcast on the day of its release. The only way to do that is by becoming a paid subscriber at I'm your moderator.substack.com. You can do so for as little as $50 a year or $5 a month. And in doing so, you will be supporting me, the work I do, and this show as it expands. And if you can't or you simply don't want to, continue listening to the podcast for free a couple days later on a wide variety of podcast platforms. And of course, Rumble, all I ask is that you share it with your friends. You can find the links to the podcast, the writing, the social media, and the merch site by visiting linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. So this week, we've been talking about the information environment, censorship, the use of AI, 
Whatever it takes to manipulate the population and get everybody back on the same page, get them all fully recommitted to the false reality. How do you go about doing that with all these people waking up? It's quite a conundrum. This problem is far too big for humans to handle on their own, so they need to employ AI. AI, the god of the false reality, will help them bring everyone back on the same page, firmly implanted in and fully believing in that false reality. So let's start here today. My good friend, Burning Bright from Badlands Media, put this article on my radar today. This is ABC News from the afternoon yesterday. Sports Illustrated is the latest media company damaged by an AI experiment gone wrong. Computer-generated writers writing computer-generated stories? Sports Illustrated is the latest media company to see its reputation damaged by being less than forthcoming, if not outright dishonest, about who or what is writing its stories at the dawn of the artificial intelligence age. The once powerful publication said it was firing a company that produced articles for its website written under the byline of authors who apparently don't exist. But it denied a published report that stories themselves were written by an artificial intelligence tool. So Sports Illustrated is claiming it was not using artificial intelligence to produce its articles, but it was hiring them out to another firm who would supply these articles and claim they were written by people who don't actually exist. And apparently that is enough of a distinction to preserve Sports Illustrated's reputation. Now, you might say, does Sports Illustrated really have a reputation? Well, they did in the 80s and 90s, let me tell you. Oh, the publisher's clearinghouse sweepstakes, which magazines do you want? Sports Illustrated, number one all the time. I loved it. These were the days before cable television and the internet. So if you were a sports addict, Sports Illustrated was as cool as it gets. Plus, once a year, they basically had one issue that was just softcore pornography. The Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue. We would pretend that it was all just about, oh, these athletic bodies. Or maybe just some weird advertisement for swimwear brands or something. It was just supermodels in swimsuits. You can't go wrong. Or can you? Here we are in 2023, and now Sports Illustrated swimsuit issue is mostly just men and overweight women who we are now supposed to pretend are the pinnacle of physical fitness. And I understand everyone has different body types, and some people struggle with their weight, and that's unfortunate. But we can be sympathetic about people's personal struggles and encourage them to do better without pretending that they are actually the picture of perfect health. And we certainly don't need to pretend that men are women. Now, it's funny that this story comes out, at least with the timing, because an NFL reporter named Carissa Thompson, just within the last couple of weeks, essentially admitted to making up stories on NFL sidelines. She said that occasionally, if she was not able to stop a coach for an interview and have a conversation, ask them some questions, she would just make up the interview. 
Here is a direct quote from Carissa Thompson. I didn't want to screw up the report, so I was like, I'm just going to make this up. Because, first of all, no coach is going to get mad if I say, hey, we need to stop hurting ourselves. We need to get better on third down. We need to stop turning the ball over and do a better job of getting off the field. Like, they're not going to correct me on that. So she would just report that she had talked to a coach, she would give some totally milquetoast comments that no one could question or get offended by under the assumption that the coach would never come back to her and say, hey, why did you say that I said all those things? We never even talked. She would just get away with it because the whole thing is just an entertainment product in the first place. She is doing journalism in quotes just to enhance and market the entertainment product. And naturally, journalists in the sports world and, of course, the political world wanted to make an example out of her and talk about how they would never do anything like that. There are all of these journalistic standards that they, as members of this austere industry, must strive to uphold. And, of course, none of the people getting all upset about this actually do that. Now, I don't think this is a good thing because I don't think that people should lie. But if we're going to hold journalists to a standard of not lying, then most of the people criticizing Carissa Thompson need to shut the hell up. We're talking about the establishment conservative outlets like National Review penning furious op eds on Carissa Thompson as if they produce fact based journalism. These are people who couldn't figure out Russiagate or COVID or the stolen election or Ukraine. They're years behind on everything and pretty much always pushing the regime's agenda in every circumstance with no regard to whether or not the things they're saying, the viewpoints they're pushing are actually representative of an empirical reality or some objective interpretation of what is happening in the real world. It's not that at all. We know that reporters make up stories about politics. They fill the central narrative with fake news. They rely on unnamed anonymous sources, sources familiar with the issue, that sort of thing all the time. At this point, it is not a stretch to say that most journalists employed by major outlets are employed primarily for their dishonesty, their ability to lie without any compunction whatsoever is now a job requirement. So in terms of the content output, it really, from a consumer standpoint, makes no difference whether or not we have a lying mainstream media journalist or if the article is just absolutely made up out of nothing by an AI. There is no reason to trust any of these sources as authoritative. And then once we realize that and accept that and make that part of our thought process in analyzing what we see and read, what difference does it make at that point, whether it's a human writing it or an AI, it is really just a matter of it being a person who is accountable rather than the machine, which is totally unaccountable. But the point is that it's up to us, our discernment, it is our responsibility to determine how much of a story we are going to incorporate into our thinking. But let's get back to the article. Earlier this year, experiments with AI went awry at both the Gannett newspaper chain and the CNET technology website. 
Many companies are testing the new technology at a time when human workers fear it could cost jobs. But the process is fraught in journalism, which builds and markets its values-based products around the notions of truth and transparency. Yes, ABC News, you've got that right. While there is nothing wrong in media companies experimenting with artificial intelligence, quote, the mistake is in trying to hide it and in doing it poorly, said Tom Rosensteel, a University of Maryland professor who teaches journalism ethics. So basically, it would be okay to use AI to write these things if you were upfront and honest about that. But of course, if you were upfront and honest about that, no one would need to read your publication because they could just produce AI articles on their own. Think about this for yourselves for a second. Doesn't have to be sports, something that you are interested in. Would you read a magazine or a website if you knew that everything on the site was just a creation of artificial intelligence. There wasn't a person actually observing and pondering something in the world and then figuring out a way to communicate it to others so that it was not only engaging, but informative and actually either entertained them or helped them process the world around them. Would you go to a website just to have AI do that for you? I could not imagine a scenario where I would do that intentionally. And if I found out that I was being tricked into doing that, I would never look at that website ever again. And of course, this is the moment at which a standard issue villager who might be discussing this would say, well, what about if you're just using AI to help with sentence structure and the layout of the article? Okay. Well, yeah, that I guess is different. Do you think that's what they're doing? If they were just doing that, it wouldn't be a controversy, would it? So it's not just that, is it? And of course, it's not just that. And of course, it's not just Sports Illustrated. Now we have the Gannett newspaper chain. That is a major newspaper chain and CNET along with Sports Illustrated, but ABC News is trying to imply to us they would never do such a thing, and neither would the other very serious news organizations. And to be clear, by the way, here are some of the Gannett's news brands. USA Today, the Austin American Statesman, the Detroit Free Press, the Indianapolis Star, the Cincinnati Inquirer, the Columbus Dispatch. The list just goes on and on. Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. These are big newspapers. If you want to be in the truth-telling business, which journalists claim they do, you shouldn't tell lies, Rosenstiel said. A secret is a form of lying. So here's how they got nabbed. On Monday, the Futurism website reported that Sports Illustrated used stories for product reviews that had authors it could not identify. Futurism found a picture of one author listed, Drew Ortiz, on a website that sells AI-generated portraits. The magazine's author profile said that, quote, Drew has spent much of his life outdoors and is excited to guide you through his never-ending list of the best products to keep you from falling to the perils of nature, end quote. Upon questioning Sports Illustrated, Futurism said all of the authors with AI-generated portraits disappeared from the magazine's website. No explanation was offered. 
Futurism quoted an unnamed person at the magazine who said artificial intelligence was used in the creation of some content as well. No matter how much they say that it's not. And that was a direct quote from the unnamed person. And here is the explanation that doesn't really explain it. Sports Illustrated said that the articles in question were created by a third party company, Advon Commerce, which assured the magazine that they were written and edited by humans. Advon had its writers use a pen name, quote, actions we don't condone, Sports Illustrated said. We demand answers and transparency from Arena Group Management about what exactly has been published under the SI name, the union said. We demand the company commit to adhering to basic journalistic standards, including not publishing computer-written stories by fake people. And yes, Sports Illustrated apparently has its own union of writers. They say they are horrified by all of this. Kind of sounds like the Writers Guild in Hollywood. All of these people are members of this union and the union is supposed to protect them. But of course, all the union actually does is protect the organization from the workers by telling the workers, hey, we're getting you the best deal you could ever possibly get. And if you complain, we are going to blame you for harming the most vulnerable employees at your organization. It would be more honest if they simply said to the employees, yeah, uh, your employers are just going to replace you with AI. There's no point in pretending you're ever going to have a job again. It's not like you were producing anything original or unique or of exceptional quality in the first place. And clearly, I'm not talking about everybody. Some Hollywood writers are actually phenomenal writers. I doubt the same can be said of Sports Illustrated, although maybe 25 years ago, it was a different story. The article then goes on to discuss what happened at Gannett, what happened at CNET, some AI experiments at BuzzFeed and the Associated Press. But what are we ultimately talking about here? We're talking about fake news outlets whose normal business model is having humans produce fake news but have now created such a complex web of lies that they actually need a superhuman AI to be able to keep track of all of the many lies they've told in order to continue presenting a somewhat at least coherent version of this false reality. I mean, think about the vast array of media sources. A company like Gannett has USA Today a bunch of newspapers, a bunch of television stations. They are the largest U.S. newspaper publisher by daily circulation. And they are also, for the record, owned by a Japanese multinational. And that is just one tiny fragment of the media environment. Think of all the media outlets and their subsidiaries, all the opinion publications, all of the different kinds of journalism, some do sports, some do food, some do travel or cinema or television or books. And what we've seen over the last decade is all of those different varieties of quote unquote journalism eventually incorporating the political agenda because their parent companies are involved in pushing the global agenda forward. And so to continue propelling that agenda, the media companies commit to doing journalism, in quotes, 
that supports that agenda. And it has to be consistent across their different brands and industries they cover on all the different platforms. That's not something that humans are really capable of doing, especially when the story is so inconsistent and incoherent that normal humans could never process and memorize and incorporate all of the central narrative. There is just too much internal conflict within the central narrative for one person to actually believe all of it. It doesn't make sense. Think about how hard that must be to coordinate for humans. That massive web of lies that must be incorporated into the narrative spun by all of these outlets. You cannot get everybody back on the same page until all of that becomes consistent, a cohesive, coherent narrative that people are able to understand. And 2020 gave us the perfect example of what it looks like when they try to do that. They all try to incorporate a COVID narrative, whether it is a sports channel or a video game or a New York Times article. They want to all be telling the same story about COVID and proper protocols and how everyone should feel about it. They did the same thing with George Floyd in the summer of love. They did the same thing with the election and the insurrection and the Ukraine war. And you know this list of major issues on which the regime has been completely aligned in their viewpoint across all of society. Whether you're watching a television commercial or hearing a politician speak, you're getting the same ideas from all of it. Now, unless you expect the public to just continue believing that everyone is trying their best to present the true story of what's happening in the world and making mistakes sometimes because mistakes are just a part of life, then people would quickly realize that your story falls apart when you put any piece of it with any other piece of it. It just doesn't make sense. Ideas pushed by one outlet have their refutations within the content of that same outlet. How do you solve that problem? And ultimately, the only solution is to hope that the AI is able to do it. And as long as the consumers of this content don't know or don't care, then that process has a chance of working. The problem comes when people do know, and of course, people do care. So let's move from AI creating fake news as part of the massive propaganda apparatus to the other side of the coin, which is the censorship apparatus that helps to defend and preserve the false reality created through the use of the propaganda apparatus. This is Michael Schellenberger, one of the reporters who was gifted the Twitter files a standard issue uniparty left villager who is now seen as a champion of free speech. This is the CTIL files number one. Many people insist that governments aren't involved in censorship, but they are. And now a whistleblower has come forward with an explosive new trove of documents rivaling or exceeding the Twitter files and the Facebook files in scale and importance. And we are here now. At the end of 2023, people like Michael Schellenberger, mainstream normie uniparty left journalists, letting their audience of fellow standard issue villagers know about something that was proven years ago. 
There has been absolutely no doubt that government is involved with the censorship. I have mentioned many times on this podcast that in the spring of 2021, Judicial Watch released emails they received as the result of a Freedom of Information request from the California Secretary of State's office showing that the California Secretary of State's office was involved with the Biden campaign's PR group to make use of a submission portal with the legacy social media platforms where they could submit censorship requests on American citizens, one of whom was me. My own face appears in those FOIA documents. Schellenberger notes that he was assisted on this article by Matt Taibbi and a woman named Alex Gutentag. U.S. and U.K. military contractors created sweeping plan for global censorship in 2018. New documents show whistleblower makes trove of new documents available to public and racket. And I don't know why these guys do that. That is just the name of their sub stacks. They're pretending as though they run the New York Times. Showing the birth certificate of the censorship industrial complex in reaction to Brexit and Trump election in 2016. A whistleblower has come forward with an explosive new trove of documents, rivaling or exceeding the Twitter files and Facebook files in scale and importance. They describe the activities of a quote unquote anti disinformation group called the Cyber Threat Intelligence League, or CTIL, that officially began as the volunteer project of data scientists and defense and intelligence veterans, but whose tactics over time appear to have been absorbed into multiple official projects, including those of the Department of Homeland Security. The CTI League documents offer the missing link answers to key questions not addressed in the Twitter files and Facebook files. Combined, they offer a comprehensive picture of the birth of the anti-disinformation sector or what we have called the censorship industrial complex. The whistleblower's documents describe everything from the genesis of modern digital censorship programs to the role of the military and intelligence agencies, partnerships with civil society organizations and commercial media, and the use of sock puppet accounts and other offensive techniques. Lock your shit down, explains one document about creating, quote, your spy disguise. Another explains that while such activities overseas are typically done by the CIA, the NSA and the Department of Defense, censorship efforts against Americans have to be done using private partners because the government doesn't have the, quote, legal authority. The whistleblower alleges that a leader of CTI League, a former British intelligence analyst, was, quote, in the room at the Obama White House in 2017 when she received the instructions to create a counter disinformation project to stop a, quote, repeat of 2016. Over the last year, public racket, congressional investigators and others have documented the rise of the censorship industrial complex, a network of over a hundred government agencies and non-governmental organizations that work together to urge censorship by social media platforms and spread propaganda about disfavored individuals, topics, and whole narratives. The U S department of Homeland Security's cybersecurity and information security agency 
And it is worth noting that Schellenberger did not get that acronym correct. It is Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. But let's continue. CISA has been the center of gravity for much of the censorship, with the National Science Foundation financing the development of censorship and disinformation tools and other federal government agencies playing a supportive role. Oh, the National Science Foundation is involved in censoring Americans? Is that science? Well, I guess it is now. Emails from CISA's NGO and social media partners show that CISA created the Election Integrity Partnership in 2020, which involved the Stanford Internet Observatory and other U.S. government contractors. EIP and its successor, the Virality Project, urged Twitter, Facebook and other platforms to censor social media posts by ordinary citizens and elected officials alike. Despite overwhelming evidence of government-sponsored censorship, it had yet to be determined where the idea for such mass censorship came from. In 2018, an SIO official, that's Stanford Internet Observatory, and former CIA fellow, Rene DeResta, generated national headlines before and after testifying to the U.S. Senate about Russian government interference in the 2016 election. But what happened between 2018 and spring 2020? The year 2019 has been a black hole in the research of the censorship industrial complex to date. When Michael Schellenberger testified to the U.S. House of Representatives about the censorship industrial complex in March of this year, the entire year was missing from his timeline. Now a large trove of documents, including strategy documents, training videos, presentations, and internal messages reveal that in 2019... U.S. and U.K. military and intelligence contractors led by a former U.K. defense researcher, Sarah Jane Terp, developed the sweeping censorship framework. These contractors co-led CTIL, which partnered with CISA in the spring of 2020. The CTIL framework and the public-private model are seeds of what both the U.S. and U.K. would put into place in 20 and 2021, including masking censorship within cybersecurity institutions and counter-disinformation agendas, a heavy focus on stopping disfavored narratives, not just wrong facts, and pressuring social media platforms to take down information or take other actions to prevent content from going viral. In the spring of 2020, CTIL began tracking and reporting disfavored content on social media, such as anti-lockdown narratives like, quote, all jobs are essential or, quote, we won't stay home and, quote, open America now. CTIL created a law enforcement channel for reporting content as part of these efforts, law enforcement. The organization also did research on individuals posting anti-lockdown hashtags like hashtag free California and kept a spreadsheet with details from their Twitter bios. The group also discussed requesting takedowns and reporting website domains to registrars. Now, just to break for a second, it is often said the narrative is pushed now by standard issue uniparty villagers on both sides that this censorship to the extent that it existed, was necessary to thwart disinformation. And COVID is always a major aspect of this. But let's make sure to keep in mind what the initial directive was, as just mentioned, 
to make sure 2016 didn't happen again. So they had this censorship apparatus all set up for the spring of 2020 when it sprang into action. Now, we all think back and understand, oh, that's the beginning of that COVID period. But that was all the 2020 election cycle. And what do they mean by preventing another 2016? It wasn't that we had a pandemic that was worsened by the spread of disinformation in 2016. What we had in 2016 was Donald Trump winning an election. That's the part that was never supposed to happen again. And so the COVID censorship and the narrative manipulation on everything else that happened in 2020 was specifically geared toward that original directive. Make sure Trump cannot be reelected. And when that is the case, you start to understand that those other narratives were pushed so hard as part of that bigger effort, not for their own sake, not for their own importance, not to save lives from the very deadly pandemic or to solve racism by posting black squares on Instagram, it was to make sure Donald Trump could not be reelected. Back to the article. CTIL's approach to disinformation went far beyond censorship. The documents show that the group engaged in offensive operations to influence public opinion, discussing ways to promote quote-unquote counter-messaging, to co-opt hashtags, dilute disfavored messaging, create sock puppet accounts, and infiltrate invite-only groups. Co-opting hashtags means, by the way, that they are using the hashtag and then filling in all the content for something unrelated to the original purpose of the hashtag. It would be very similar to SEO manipulation, so that the search engine only finds the thing that you're not looking for. It's not censorship. It's just abusing the system to make sure that no one sees that other undesirable content. In one suggested list of survey questions, CTIL proposed asking members or potential members, quote, have you worked with influence operations, e.g. disinformation, hate speech, other digital harms, etc. previously, end quote. The survey then asked whether these influence operations included active measures and psyops. How about that, huh? I guess it's all a conspiracy theory that all of these things I talk about all the time on social media and interact with all the time on social media are real and orchestrated and well-funded and directed and intended for exactly this purpose. This is one of the reasons why I do what I do on Twitter, because I want to understand these operations, how they work, what they're intended to do. If you want to experience it for yourself and you have an account on X, formerly Twitter, all you have to do is go to an account like Marjorie Taylor Greene and in the replies to one of her posts, just choose the newest one, say something related to stolen elections and see how many responses you get. I did that yesterday and had maybe a hundred different accounts go after that post in very similar ways. Most of those accounts, very, very low followers have been on the platform for a long time. No profile picture, no normal screen name that a human would create. Very few, if any, original posts on their timeline. Just a collection of behaviors throughout these accounts, generally speaking, that are clear signals that that individual account might be some sort of bot or sock account. 
And a sock account or a sock puppet account is an account set up with another person running it, not representing themselves, but representing something else. There are all sorts of mainstream journalists and politicians and campaign people who have sock accounts so that they can act on social media in ways that they would not want to act with their name attached. I've talked on this podcast and elsewhere before about how the writer from Town Hall, Kurt Schlichter, one of the leading DeSantis simps, has a sock account on Twitter that he uses to harass people in ways that he can't be seen doing from his lofty position at town hall as a leading DeSantis simp. And if you want to see that sock account, it is at and I'll whisper no, which is a quote from the comic book and movie Watchmen. The authors note that most of the people they reached out to for comment declined to comment or did not respond at all. But they say one person involved, Bonnie Smalley, replied over LinkedIn saying, quote, all I can comment on is that I joined CTI League, which is unaffiliated with any government organizations because I wanted to combat the inject bleach nonsense online during covid. I can assure you that we had nothing to do with the government, though, end quote. Yet the documents suggest that government employees were engaged members of CTIL. One individual who worked for DHS, Justin Frappier, was extremely active in CTIL, participating in regular meetings and leading trainings. Now, this is pure speculation, but it sounds based on that woman's and the fact that there are very obviously government people involved, it seems likely that they had a formal policy of not employing any government workers, not having any formal connections. All of those connections would then be informal. People would be compensated in different ways so that it cannot be tracked. And then in a situation like this, where people find out about the connections, they can simply deny or claim that they had strict policies about how that involvement could never happen. We see so much of this sort of thing. It is also notable that this lady says she was worried about the inject bleach nonsense. The disinformation about the inject bleach nonsense was coming entirely from the Trump hating community. Trump never said that. And no Trump supporter ever believed it. It was just a big story for brain dead communists. Back to the article. CTIL's ultimate goal, said the whistleblower, was to become part of the federal government. In our weekly meetings, they made it clear that they were building these organizations within the federal government. And if you built the first iteration, we could secure a job for you. End quote. Terp's plan, which she shared in presentations to information security and cybersecurity groups in 2019, was to create, quote, misinfosec communities, end quote, that would include government. Misinfosec communities, misinformation security. Both public records and the whistleblower's documents suggest that she achieved this. In April 2020, Chris Krebs, then director of CISA, announced on Twitter and in multiple articles that CISA was partnering with CTIL. It's really an information exchange, said Krebs. So right there, that is absolute indisputable proof that government organizations were absolutely involved with CTIL. 
So then the question is, in regard to that woman who actually responded to their request for comment, did she know about these connections and lie about them? Did she know about these connections and lie about them because she thought they couldn't be substantiated by anyone? Or did she simply not know about these connections? Any of those are possible. And to be clear, when organizations decide that they are going to prevent certain relationships from being formalized because that would draw their work into question, they're not only doing that for the public, sometimes they're doing it for the people in the organization. It's not like these people have any problems with tricking their own people. The documents also show that Terp and her colleagues, through a group called MisinfoSec Working Group, which included DeResta, created a censorship, influence, and anti-disinformation strategy called Adversarial Misinformation and Influence Tactics and Techniques. That is A-M-I-T-T. They wrote A-M-I-T-T by adapting a cybersecurity framework developed by MITRE, a major defense and intelligence contractor that has an annual budget of $1 to $2 billion in government funding. Terp later used AMITT to develop the DISARM framework, which the World Health Organization then employed in, quote, countering anti-vaccination campaigns across Europe. A key component of Terp's work through CTIL, MisinfoSec, and AMITT was to insert the concept of cognitive security into the fields of cybersecurity and information security. The sum total of the documents is a clear picture of a highly coordinated and sophisticated effort by the U.S. and U.K. governments to build a domestic censorship effort and influence operations similar to the ones they have used in foreign countries. At one point, Terp openly referenced her work, quote, in the background on social media issues related to the Arab Spring. Another time, the whistleblower said she expressed her own apparent surprise that she would ever use such tactics developed for foreign nationals against American citizens. And again, this is something that we have known about for almost four years. Many of us were talking in 2020 about the organization directed by General Stanley McChrystal called Defeat Disinfo. This is an information and influence operation that was used back in the Arab Spring. The claim was always that this would be used against terrorists. They would influence populations to help us rather than the quote unquote terrorists. And that word should always perk your ears in a different way than it used to, because these same people, this government, this uniparty, this branch of the regime calls us terrorists. Once that happens, we can't just assume that when they call other people terrorists, they mean, oh, those big, scary Middle Eastern people who blow up planes and buildings. So the system they used or they say they used against terrorists in the Middle East has now been turned on the people they now call terrorists in America, essentially any Trump supporter. And we will get to more of that in just a second. According to the whistleblower, roughly 12 to 20 active people involved in CTIL worked at the FBI or CISA. For a while, they had their agency seals, FBI, CISA, whatever. 
next to their name on the Slack messaging service, said the whistleblower. Terp, quote, had a CISA badge that went away at some point, the whistleblower said. The ambitions of the 2020 pioneers of the censorship industrial complex went far beyond simply urging Twitter to slap a warning label on tweets or to put individuals on blacklists. The AMITT framework calls for discrediting individuals as a necessary prerequisite of demanding censorship against them. It calls for training influencers to spread messages, and it calls for trying to get banks to cut off financial services to individuals who organize rallies or events. The timeline of CIS's work with CTIL leading up to its work with EIP and VP strongly suggests that the model for public-private censorship operations may have originated from a framework originally created by military contractors. What's more, the techniques and materials outlined by CTIL closely resemble materials later created by CISA's Countering Foreign Intelligence Task Force and Miss Dis and Malinformation Team. So they're basically taking the same influence manipulation operation apparatus and repurposing it, rebranding it for use on American citizens. And let's think about that first part of this paragraph talking about discrediting individuals as a necessary prerequisite of demanding censorship against them. So in order to make this censorship look justifiable to the general public, they have to first tell the general public and convince the general public that whoever is being censored is actually a really, really bad person. And immediately you can see the intentional overlap with the pushing of cancel culture. And we all know the vectors of attack they would use, the Me Too stuff, anything having to do with race, anything having to do with homophobia. They want people to look like rapists or racists or bigots or frauds because once they've convinced the general public that these are bad people, then of course their censorship is not only acceptable, it's necessary. And that connects with the next step, training influencers to spread the messages. So they have teams of people, real people in this case, who are able to convince the general public of virtually whatever the corporations pay them to convince the general public of, and they were being set to this task. Make the general public believe that these individuals are actually really bad people so that we can censor them. Make the general public believe that all of these issues could cause great harm to vulnerable individuals if those bad people are out there spreading disinformation about these issues. And so it's not only that they are using the weapon to censor and silence people, they are using it to first enhance the hate movement, which they use not only to target individuals, but to target massive groups that they associate with one another by certain viewpoints, even if the people in the groups don't believe they have anything to do with one another. It is their inconvenient opinions that makes them terrorists, just like all the other terrorists. I mean, consider the deleterious nature of this for the stability of a society. They are basically using military grade technology, information and influence operations to make it so that 
certain groups of people are seen as not being worthy of being afforded basic human rights any longer. That is what this legitimately is. And the reputations and relationships destroyed in the process are just, I guess, collateral damage. So, hey, everybody, the regime used military technology to make your friends, your families and your coworkers hate you. But yeah, Donald Trump is the problem. Now, this article, which appears as a series of really long posts on X, formerly Twitter, is worth your time, but I'm not going to go through all of it. I do want to hit a few more parts. The MisinfoSec report advocated for sweeping government censorship and counter misinformation. During the first six months of 2019, the authors say they analyzed quote unquote incidents developing a reporting system and shared their censorship vision with quote unquote numerous state treaty and NGOs. In every incident mentioned, the victims of misinformation were on the political left, and they included Barack Obama, John Podesta, Hillary Clinton, and Emmanuel Macron. The report was open about the fact that its motivation for counter misinformation were the twin political earthquakes of 2016, Brexit, and the election of Trump. A study of the antecedents to these events led us to the realization that there's something off kilter with our information landscape, wrote Terp and her co-authors. The useful idiots and fifth columnists, now augmented by automated bots, cyborgs and human trolls, are busily engineering public opinion, stoking up outrage, sowing doubt and chipping away at trust in our institutions. And now it's our brains that are being hacked. And so that's us, of course. We are the people who are spreading disinformation and destroying the trust in institutions. We're useful idiots, fifth columnists, bots, cyborgs, and human trolls. Now, this is one of those times where people are like, yeah, okay, I see that you're saying they're making that claim against you and it's not true, but isn't that the same claim you make against them? And the answer is yes, we do. Now, how can we say that? Because all of the evidence of these things existing, how they are used and by whom they are used against whom all favor our interpretation and not the reverse. For some people who are not awake yet, the fact that this problem is entirely or almost entirely on one side and used in one direction almost guarantees that they will see this situation as biased. They believe that every bad thing that is done is done by both sides to a similar enough degree that it washes out and everything once again becomes a matter of opinion and they have a different opinion than you. That is how these people proceed through the world. Everything bad is done by both sides, except for the things that only the other side does. They could never be the side that does some bad thing exclusively. If their side does something bad, then it must be true that the other side is doing the same bad thing, probably in a worse way. But even if it's not worse, it's still basically just as bad. And so we go right back to the beginning where we simply decide one way or another. And it's just a difference of opinion 
just a little bit. It's not really important. The other side is the bad side. And this is just how we treat one another. Except that's not the case. You don't hear us out there arguing about how some people should be censored because of the dangerous and bad and evil and incorrect things they say. I am pretty certain that I have never supported censorship in any case. And that is not what we see from the other side. They actually do argue that censorship is important and necessary. I also haven't seen any released emails or government documents that suggest a similar project was being created and run on the Trump side of things. Even Trump's enemies have never suggested that. Censorship simply is not a part of the America first perspective. It is actually repellent and repulsive to people like us who have been censored by people like them. We know this happened because we were the targets of it. And people who watched us get targeted and watched us be censored still denied that it was happening, said that it was okay that it was happening, and then claimed that there was no way the government was involved with it. So it's okay that private companies are doing it. And what I said is not in dispute. That is the obvious public record of events. People in the mainstream, members of the regime, supported these ideas for years on end, including, by the way, on the uniparty right. I remember I used to listen to National Review podcasts where they would be talking about how Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act allowed those private companies to censor whatever they want. These things really aren't in dispute. This was one-sided, directed against the other side. The MisinfoSec report focused on information that changes beliefs through narratives and recommended a way to counter misinformation by attacking specific links in a kill chain or influence chain from the MisInfo incident before it becomes a full-blown narrative. Amazing, isn't it, how... The things that we have talked about for so long just happen to be the exact frameworks through which to interpret these events and through which the people controlling and manipulating these events were interpreting them. Wow. The report laments that government and corporate media no longer have full control of information. Hey, how about that? The report laments that governments and corporate media no longer have full control of information. Man, oh man, I wonder what that means. I wonder if that means that the things we've been saying this whole time happen to be right. For a long time, the ability to reach mass audiences belonged to the nation state. For example, in the U.S. via broadcast licensing through ABC, CBS, and NBC. Now, however, control of informational instruments has been allowed to devolve to large technology companies who have been blissfully complacent and complicit in facilitating access to the public for information operators at a fraction of what it would have cost them by other means. So through social media, other narratives were able to enter the mainstream, the collective mind. The authors advocated for police, military, and intelligence involvement in censorship across Five Eyes nations and even suggested that Interpol should be involved. 
So five eyes is US, UK, New Zealand, Australia, Canada. And then, of course, that information gets shared with other intelligence services where necessary and very likely all of the UK Commonwealth nations. So basically the entirety of the global regime. The authors discuss how this apparatus was also used and directed toward pre-bunking narratives, which they described as preemptively inoculating a vulnerable population against messaging. So like an information vaccine. And hey, it didn't work just like the COVID vaccine, and it may well have cost tons of people their lives. Terp's view of disinformation was overtly political. Most misinformation is actually true, noted Terp in the 2019 podcast, but set in the wrong context. Terp is an eloquent explainer of the strategy of using anti-disinformation efforts to conduct influence operations. Quote, you're not trying to get people to believe lies most of the time. Most of the time you're trying to change their belief sets. And in fact, really uh, deeper than that, you're trying to change, to shift their internal narratives, the set of stories that are your baseline for your culture. So that might be the baseline for your culture as an American. So she is talking directly about the process of presenting people with genuine, legitimate facts about the world that causes them to see the world in a different way than they did prior and potentially then shift their underlying narrative about how they understand the world. The wonderful writer Joan Didion observed in her essay, The White Album, inside her collection of essays, also called The White Album, that we tell ourselves stories in order to live. Our life is essentially an ongoing story that is a collection of smaller stories. And in each one of those stories is how we understand the world around us. The censorship apparatus is there to make sure that people would not be exposed to legitimate, genuine facts that might change their beliefs on how the world is. They understand that they have built up a false reality and they do not want that false reality challenged. If that false reality is challenged effectively enough for enough people, then they abandon their belief in the false reality and snap back into the real reality, the empirical observable reality. And in that reality, they realize, whoa, I was supporting a whole lot of really bad things. These people absolutely tricked me. How did this happen? That is the exact process many of us have been through. It's the exact process we've witnessed over the past few years and continue to witness. And it is the exact process that, of course, these people had to stop. Because if that thing happens for real as it's happening, they are all toast. The global regime's project of complete and total world domination under this one world liberal international rules-based order, that whole project becomes a failure. Back to the article. SJ, this is Terp, called us the Hogwarts School for Misinformation and Disinformation, said the whistleblower. They were superheroes in their own story, and to that effect, you could still find comic books on the CISA site. They go on to talk about the group's work in countering misinformation about COVID and write, 
CTIL also worked to brainstorm counter messaging for things like encouraging people to wear masks and discussed building an amplification network. Repetition is truth, said a CTIL member in one training. And that is about as close to Orwell as you could ever come in real life. Repetition is truth. When asked whether Terp or other CTIL leaders discussed their potential violation of the First Amendment, the whistleblower said, quote, they did not. The ethos was that if we get away with it, it's legal. And there were no First Amendment concerns because we have a public-private partnership. That's the word they used to disguise those concerns. Private people can do things public servants can't do, and public servants can provide the leadership and coordination. Public-private partnership. Corporations, NGOs, working hand-in-hand with the government. That, my friends, is definitionally fascism. And the fact that they are using it to censor American citizens should erase all doubt about the underlying ideology here. The government is not allowed to delegate to private individuals or corporations that which it is not allowed to do. And here we have not only clear proof of that, but clear proof of that being the recommended method to avoid accountability and any legal concerns. They're telling you specifically, this is why we do that. And it's important to really understand this and really incorporate it into your thinking. When you hear public-private partnership, what they are doing is setting up a quasi-governmental or governmental ancillary organization so they can do things on the government's behalf that the government isn't allowed to do. And oh yeah, by the way, you're paying for it. The article continues, they discuss some of the stuff related to the election, the Election Integrity Partnership Group, and how all of this was used to control that narrative as well. Again, I recommend this to everyone if you want to get the full picture. It is also worth always keeping in mind what it means that they are so reliant on this level and this type of censorship. The truth doesn't work for them. What does that tell you? That tells you they need that false reality. They need the lies. They need the population to believe things that aren't true. And there is no amount of energy and resources they won't expend to achieve that goal. They don't care about the law. They don't care about. These are the sorts of things that wouldn't be necessary if they were actually achieving their goals. If they were winning. They wouldn't need to do this. Their information operations would work. People would believe them, but nobody believes them. And so they need the propaganda. They need the AI. They need the censorship. And it sounds scary. It's very intimidating until you understand that they're not winning. If they were winning, they wouldn't be doing all of this. And finally, we have this from American Greatness. Newly released docs. Special Counsel Jack Smith demanded info on Americans who favorited or retweeted Trump tweets. Special Counsel Jack Smith demanded information on Twitter users who liked or retweeted former President Donald Trump's tweets leading up to the January 6th riot, according to a heavily redacted search warrant and other documents released Monday. Smith's comprehensive search warrant sought the 2024 Republican presidential primary frontrunner search history, direct messages and, quote, content 
of all tweets created, drafted, favorited, liked, or retweeted by his account from October 2020 to January 2021. The special counsel also demanded a list of all devices used to log in to Trump's then Twitter, now X, account, as well as information on users who interacted with the then president in the months leading up to January 6th, 2021, the court filings show. So they want to know everybody who was able to sign into Trump's Twitter account. They want to know everything about Trump's Twitter account, including all the private direct messages, the search history, everything that he has drafted, liked, favorited, retweeted. They want it all. And then they want the information on all users who interacted with President Trump's Twitter account. So basically everybody. Among the information Smith sought were lists of all Twitter users who favorited or retweeted Trump's tweets, quote, as well as all tweets that include the username associated with the account in mentions or replies. The special counsel also requested a list of every user Trump, quote, followed, unfollowed, muted, unmuted, blocked or unblocked, and a list of users who took any of the same actions with Trump's account during the aforementioned time frame. There is no benign or reasonable justification for that demand, wrote former FBI agent and whistleblower Steve Friend on X, formerly Twitter. Smith demanded the information as part of the special counsel investigation into Trump's actions leading up to the January 6th, 2021 riot at the U.S. Capitol. In August, Smith formally lodged a four-count indictment against Trump, accusing him of a massive criminal conspiracy to reverse the results of the 2020 election. <laughs> Just because the elections were stolen. What a crazy man. The court released the warrant after multiple media organizations filed a Freedom of Information Act request to obtain the document. Eight of the search warrants, 14 pages are completely redacted. The New York Post reported the warrant included a non-disclosure order instructing the company not to notify Trump about the search. The social media giant objected to the order, arguing unsuccessfully that it was a violation of the First Amendment and the Stored Communications Act. The DOJ argued back that notifying Trump would result in, quote, statutorily cognizable harm. For what appears to be the first time in its history, Twitter Incorporated has filed a motion to vacate or modify an order that it not disclose the existence of a search warrant, Smith said, adding that, quote, there is reason to believe notification to the former president, a sophisticated actor with an expansive platform would result in a statutorily cognizable harm. So basically, Jack Smith didn't want anyone to know. And if Trump found out, then Trump would let everyone else know. And then Jack Smith would look like a maniac as he now looks. X ultimately complied with the warrant, but was fined $350,000 for failing to meet Smith's demands by deadline, according to the Federalist. Trump's legal team has since appealed the order, calling it unconstitutional, and has threatened to take the matter to the U.S. Supreme Court. And I imagine it will probably get there and good because these are the sorts of violations of privacy that the Fourth Amendment of the Constitution was designed to protect the American people against. 
So basically, they want to have full coordination and control over what content is produced and what content you consume. They want full coordination and control over what you're allowed to post and who is allowed to post in the first place. And then they also want back-end access to all of your data, your private messages, the draft tweets you didn't even send, and everyone who interacts with other accounts, in this case, the president. They are seeking absolute full control over the information environment and understand they've already lost it. Again, think about what that means. I'll be back tomorrow at the same reasonable time on the same reasonable podcast network. I don't have a network. Masks and lockdowns don't work. They lied to you about a pandemic and Joe Biden will never be president. In my mind, that's the end game. If you're listening to this episode for free, you can support me and support the show and the work I do by signing up for a paid subscription at imyourmoderator.substack.com. You can do so for as low as $50 a year or $5 a month, comes out to under a quarter per episode, and you'll blast right through the paywall for all of the writing. The merch store is www.cancelcouture.com, and you can find everything else by heading to Linktree, linktree.com slash I'm your moderator. And I'll see you soon out on the range. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Yeah. 
In my mind, that's the end game. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to follow what I'm reading and thinking throughout the day, you can do that by downloading the Telegram Messenger app and going to t.me slash I'm your moderator. On social media, you can follow me on Truth Social, Getter, and Gab at I'm Your Moderator. I also have channels on Rumble and BitChute. If you'd like to follow the writing, you can find me at I'm Your Moderator.substack.com. The merch site is CancelCouture.com or go direct shop.spreadshirt.com slash cancel dash couture. If you'd like to support the podcast financially, the best place to do that is Kofa. Go to ko-fi.com slash I'm your moderator. And all of these details will appear in the show notes with each episode. I'll see you soon down on the range. It's hell!